Welcome. Um, I'm Paul Cheshire. I'm a professor of economic geography uh, here at LSE. Um, glad to see you here. I am required to tell you about the fire assembly point. I, I have a long, I have five pages of instructions here. Uh, but anyway, should there be a fire alarm, uh, you have to leave the building and assemble the corner of Lincoln's Inn Field. Um, Anyway, I'm very pleased indeed that Peter Freeman is here uh, to give a lecture tonight. Uh, the price of risk, planning, infrastructure and community building. Now, Peter is uh, a hero of development, you might say. <laughs> uh, you know, he came out of history. We were just talking about 16th century history beforehand, uh, about which I know very little. <laughs> um, uh, then moved into law and then moved into development and set up Argent in, I think, 1981, was it? Uh, and Argent is a, a very interesting, has a very interesting uh, history, in, in my view, as an urbanist and an urban economist, uh, of, of really one of the few developers that's been able to, to change the perception, at least, of neighbourhoods within cities, had a significant impact on the urban fabric and is now having a significant impact on the urban fabric at King's Cross. Uh, so we're very pleased to have you here, Peter. And there's the thingy, uh, the, the microphone. And please uh, yeah. take it from here. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin by talking about the American president. No, not that one. Um, what would Jack Kennedy have said to a conference of property developers? He'd have used the words from his inaugural address to the nation. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And if the developers listened and decided their developments had to bring public benefit and build communities, not isolated, bling-trump towers, how much good could we all have created? The current president is, of course, a developer, but sadly Donald didn't listen to Jack. Trump's idea of development is a casino or an exclusive duplex penthouse in a tower named after him. He's more familiar with Chapter 11 and litigation, but not the ideas I'd like to share with you today about building communities. So just as I avoid the words prestigious and exclusive, my greatest satisfaction is to build a public square and to see children playing there in the fountains at no charge to them or their parents. That's inclusive development. And the landlord doesn't have to be a saint to pay for the square that everyone else uses. As long as the square is part of a large enough development and the landlord owns the building around it, he will get his payback from the rents of the building and the public can enjoy it for free. So my aim today is to show the positive side of development. It really can be socially useful. I'll also show the risks that are involved in a major scheme and discuss how, if those risks accentuated in major schemes of land assembly and planning could be mitigated, many more major schemes could happen and bring massive public benefit. A virtuous circle for the government, the community and even the environment. A tall order but achievable if we try. I've delivered two multi-phase mixed-use projects, Bindi Place in Birmingham between 1993 and 2005, and King's Cross in London, now in its home straight. 
Both schemes have succeeded commercially and socially. I'll illustrate how and why later. I've also been trying to obtain planning for a new market town in Sussex for seven years, which embeds similar positive principles, but planning hasn't yet been achieved. Let's start with the regeneration of King's Cross. Oops. Um, here's an image of the before at King's Cross. It's an industrial wasteland north of the Euston Road. Nothing attractive about it. A reputation for drugs, prostitution and vandalism. Not a place to dwell. Here's the after. A mixed-use scheme, pedestrianised, nine new public squares and a kilometre of landscaped gardens along a canal. Home to a university, Central St Martins, a primary school, the UK headquarters of Google and Facebook, home also to 100 shops and restaurants, 1,700 apartments, cinemas and shortly a theatre. Here are the children I mentioned playing in the fountains, all for free. It's a breathtaking transformation, office workers strolling through green squares built over once contaminated lands. It hopefully feels a natural extension of the areas around, a form of organic growth. It doesn't stand out from the London street pattern, but it's actually intensely master-planned, by which I mean that before any development had begun, we divided the site into a series of open spaces and about 60 separately developable plots, all joined together by the public realm. For each plot, we agreed a type of use with the planners and amassing. Plots were orientated to face the public squares and benefit from them, and to encourage pedestrian flow. So while the, the incorporation of the canal and some of the listed buildings helped to give King's Cross a sense of age and organic growth, it is nevertheless very much master-planned. Intentional design, as well as age, can create the places we love. Delivering King's Cross... Oops, went on one. Oh. That's that you should have. Um, delivering King's Cross required a patience that's not generally available from developers and investors, and it involves a risk, or at least a perceived risk, that few are willing to take. Risks around contamination, the completion of the new station concourses, building over railway tunnels. Risks around market demand and the availability of finance. Not only was developing King's Cross deemed to be too risky for most to try, but the planning system and historic fragmented land ownership make it incredibly hard to bring off a major scheme. My message is that comprehensive mixed-use schemes not only add real social and cultural value to an area, but although they're complex to deliver, they may actually turn out to be less risky than a series of one-off buildings, provided you can assemble the land and provided there's a political will. Both big ifs without greater and more frequent government help. I mentioned government help a few times in this. Bar those two major hurdles, a major multi-phase scheme um, has two advantages. First, it creates its own momentum and critical mass and brand, which helps let buildings. And second, it's spread over the whole cycle. You know, you're not trying to catch that magic moment of one year when the market peaks. You're working across 15 years and you should finance accordingly. My worst ever scheme was meant to be a single easy building. Um, it was in Bristol in 1988. It should have been straightforward. Knock down a rubbish building, build a new one, let it. The planners decided to list the facade of the rubbish building. We missed the market. 
Um, costs rose to £8 million, building behind a facade. We sold it for £4 million, so we lost 50% of cost. Um, and as we borrowed 50% of cost, we lost 100% of equity. So when developers look as if they're, they're making out like bandits sometimes, there is a lot of risk. Um, and as I say, an individual building can be more risky than carrying out a whole scheme where you control your environment. I believe that if you create that environment, if you create a real hub, not just a business park or a housing estate, but a mixed-use hub where people are working and living and playing, a marketplace for people, ideas and trade, a place where relationships can be forged, your work as a developer will help communities. So that's the background of my lecture. The structure's in three parts. First, to look at the geospatial qualities and mix of uses that make a successful community and increase the quality of life. I'll be highlighting the importance of proximity between work, home and play and suggesting that the last hundred years in which the market and planners increasingly separated out uses, jobs away from homes, may prove to be an aberration. I hope so. Second, I'll turn to choices open to investors in making um, in decisions in an increasingly complex, benchmarked and regulated economy to the advantages and disadvantages of different investment assets. Third, I'll be looking at how placemakers, um, developers, architects, landscape architects and other designers can make a far greater uh, contribution to building communities and generating sustainable social benefits without sacrificing their own commercial aims. How a virtuous circle can be created. How we can change the idea of NIMBY to YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard. backyard. And that change requires the politicians and the public to see that developers can bring benefits and build communities, and then for developers to rise to President Kennedy's challenge and up their game by bringing benefits. So how do people choose to live? Well, most of us aren't hermits. We're social animals. Settlements emerged to give us shelter where there was a ready supply of land and fuel, um, to give us security and company, and to allow some level of specialisation and cooperation. Once upon a time, communities maintained their own ditches and roads with their own shared labour. For much of history, we've been centred on a village, a, a place with a priest, a farmer, a tanner, a blacksmith, a carter, a butcher. Small but diverse skills. Perhaps a total community of just several hundred people was what 95% of the world has known for almost all of history. The size of communities has grown out of all proportion. But communities are still the root of the sharing economy. Babysitting and child mining, school runs, car clubs, local fates. These shared activities of mutual support and interaction are critical to well-being. As mental health becomes a huge issue for the NHS and employers, the benefits from reinforcing communities will have a massive economic impact. People commuting by car to and from houses locked away in cul-de-sacs are less likely to be part of a community than people passing each other walking down tree-lined streets on the way to school, local schools, local workplaces and local shops. I'm a great fan of walking. In anything other than the least productive moorland, desert or jungle, one village was rarely more than five kilometres away from the next or nor closer than two kilometres. The gaps equated to between half an hour and an hour's walk. Still seen in the villages of London, the gap between Richmond and Kew, or Highgate and Hampstead. 
I believe easy walkability is critical to community and for health. It's not just the ease of the exercise or the exercise, but the chance meetings, the lack of stress associated with crowded roads and difficult parking. A radius of 500 metres is an easy walk. A mile can be okay. Anything more becomes challenging. So underlying my sense of community and urban planning is what can you do within 500 metres to a mile max, <coughs> 10 to 20 minutes walk? And how can architects and developers create schemes that benefit the local community within walking distance? How can the layout of a network of streets and the mix of building types bring people together and make their lives better? And where can you put the benches and swings? When Harvard put more benches out, the suicide rate went down. It's that connection of people in a public open space. Property investors and local authorities must work together to make high street communities hubs again. Historically, nearly everybody lived, who lived in the settlement also worked there. There wasn't the time or the money to live further away. Many people lived in large crowded households, often employers and staff under one roof. The house was also the workspace, originally for agriculture, later often in a home combined with a manufacturing or service business, the world described in Peeps or Dickens. Not necessarily a world of comfort or ease, but definitely a world where you lived cheek by jowl in community. People knew their neighbours. Journeys to work were short, and all experiences were real or religious. Nothing virtual or ersatz about the smells of a city. The summer of 1858 in London was known as the Great Stink. And the diseases associated with impure water kept the death rate above the birth rate in most cities until proper sewage systems were introduced. So when I talk about developers' funding infrastructure, it's everything from sewage treatment to 5G, from playgrounds to doctor surgeries. A change to the scale of communities. Oh, I should have shown you that when I was doing the master planning bit. Um, that's King's Cross broken into the 60 plots. Um, a change to the scale of communities began as transport accelerated and trade and population increased in the 18th century. The first industrial revolution saw the creation of a national network and an increased speed on toll roads. King's Cross first reached importance in that period as a place where canals from the Midlands reached London. My office is in that building, shown in this early century image of King's Cross. It was originally a grain store. It's now the University of Arts London. Good buildings shouldn't be disposable. They should be capable of reinvention and reuse. The second industrial revolution brought the introduction of trains and a further rapid expansion of town size. The growing number of people grouped in a single settlement has been transformed at an ever-increasing pace by technology in the last 250 years. Traditional village blacksmiths and wheelwrights replaced by the factories of Detroit and Dagenham. And with that came new communities, the back-to-back, two up and two down for the working class, the gracious Georgian and Victorian town squares for a growing middle class. But as transport grew faster and cheaper in the 19th century, the noise and smell and poor health of industrial cities encouraged the creation of new residential areas much further from the workplace. Richer people no longer wanted to live in the crowded, noisy, smelly parts of towns alongside manufacturing. Grand homes in South Kensington were abandoned in favour of villas on St George's Hill and Sunningdale. 
Towards the end of the period, new leafy suburbs sprouted where everyone had their own front and back gardens and the man of the house could commute by train with fold umbrella. And then, between the wars, the Third Revolution brought mass ownership of cars. The rigid spoken hub geometry of rail was suddenly transformed. The car gave almost infinite choice of journey. Petrol was relatively cheap. Traffic was light. Parking was easy. No one worried about pollution. Cars were the perfect answer. So design and planning from the 60s onwards increasingly focused on road layouts and land allocation that assumed cars were the king of the the road and the only way to travel. Only poor people took buses, Thatcher is meant to have said. Um, Outside city centres, residential housing estates assumed two cars per home and put more emphasis on a layout that accommodated and slowed down for safety cars near houses, rather than building straighter roads with tree-lined pavements, allowing pedestrians pleasant access to schools and shops. Business parks and retail parks grew up on dual carriageways in locations remote from the town centre that could only be accessed by cars. The number of cars in Britain increased from a million in 1920 to 32 million in 2019. In the same period, the number of homes rose from 8 million to 25 million. Cars increased by 32 times, homes by three times. Today, nearly 85% of passenger kilometres are in private cars, not trains or buses. At the same time as cars offered a new, unparalleled flexibility in making journeys between homes and jobs and schools and leisure, there was limited resistance to greenfield development in a Britain still recovering from bomb damage and post-war austerity. For 20 years, from 1947 to 1967, there was even the political will to build new towns. But the idyll of suburban car-born living has begun to unravel. Now we worry that pollution is damaging the environment, that journey costs are high, that our trains are overcrowded and our roads blocked with traffic. We see that many of our high streets are over, um, uh, many of our high streets and the opportunities they offer for comparison shopping and pleasurable chance encounters are dying as people shop online or near where they work rather than where they live. And unless there's a particularly proactive estate landowner um, like Howard de Walden in the Maribyrnong area, there's no one to curate an interesting mix of tenants and to fund the works that make a street a place to enjoy, including the benches. I believe that the separation of homes from working community services has indirectly contributed to the housing crisis. The housing crisis is a direct result of too much money chasing too few homes. Homes that have been built to be served by cars above any other form of transport. Homes that are too remote from schools and work, shops and doctors' surgeries to make walking or cycling practical. Homes that are no longer served by buses because the availability of cars made frequent regular bus services no longer viable. This has been exacerbated by poorly managed Greenbelt policies. Paul's favourite issue. Um, The Greenbelt got bigger and bigger. It acted as a restriction on development, but it failed to create significant areas of attractive countryside with either improved public access or improved biodiversity. As the Greenbelt spread, it restricted development where it should naturally occur and forced local commutes to get longer. The Greenbelt has further separated homes from jobs. One suggestion I have 
is that where a developer is willing to transfer 10 acres of greenbelt to the public in ownership and endow it, then there should be a presumption in favour of developing one acre. There's a trade-off. 90% to the public endowed, landscaped and beautiful, 10% to be developed. We have to create a situation where planning gain is regarded as a positive incentive to deliver benefits to community. At the moment, planning gain is often seen as either an underhand bribe by a developer, a nasty developer, or an unwarranted demand by the unreasonable public. Planning gain should be neither. It can play a far more productive role. Because new homes have been provided um, for at least 30 years without a matching provision of roads, schools, parks, jobs, existing residents now regularly resist new homes in their backyard. Planning officers who worked proudly after the Second World War to rebuild a bombed-out Britain now mostly work to limit, not to encourage development. It's development control. That's also been tied in with a tax system that sees very little building-related tax retained by local authorities. So why should a local authority welcome additional building? And so a cycle continues when not enough land is zoned for housing, so houses are in limited supply and house prices go up. And because house prices have ridden faster than inflation, and because gains on principal homes have been tax-free, there's been a rational desire to get on the housing ladder, almost regardless of cost, putting further pressure and ratcheting prices up. The last 15 years has seen um, a detachment from all previous trends in house prices. You can see on this slide, borrowed from Paul, um, that there are areas of the country now uh, where the average house price is seven and a half to 14 times um, earnings. And for a huge long period, it was always assumed that house prices would stay between three and four times earnings. Um, economists didn't spot that change coming 20 years ago because it's come with various um, long-term unexpected changes, interest rates which were typically 10% plus from probably the late 60s to um, the late 90s have now fell to sort of 5% and then fell to 1% and under 1%. So borrowing costs are very low. Um, the average household size has pushed has declined, pushing more homes. It was 4.8 people in a household in 1880, 3.5 in 1950, and 2.4 today. There's been a continuing focus on London and the southeast, putting more pressure there. We've had a government that's become more and more afraid to allocate land, especially a Tory government in the southeast hanging on to Tory seats. Um, and we've had an almost complete cessation of council house building and a cutback on grants to housing associations. They've all helped to cause a crisis and a divided society. And while we are building our way out of it, and every government says it's determined to build 300,000 homes a year, it would be a terrible shame if we didn't also build communities with shops and schools and jobs. Um, So I'm, I will make a prediction. Um, alongside the boom in virtual communities, the crowds of Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp, there will be a renaissance in real communities. Real communities that rely on real estate. Real communities that meet in squares and parks and playing fields, as well as office buildings, pedestrianised shopping markets, and at the school gate. These communities will support the contact 
old people need with young people and vice versa. There's support finding people who share your passion for five-a-side football or basketball, for bell ringing and choral music, for rap and yoga. The target of 300,000 homes per year, 6 million homes over the next 20 years, gives us a real opportunity to be out to create a better Britain. Let's not miss it. Um, I'd like to turn now to what investors look for and how you attract their money into these long-term schemes. Um, the investment industry has got infinitely more complex in the time that I and Nigel have been at this. Um, when we started, it was basically a UK or national industry. Um, there wasn't much benchmarking. There weren't many highly paid investment managers. Hedge funds hadn't been invented. Um, and it was relatively straightforward. There were some investment managers who held some property, some held some bonds, some held some equities. They didn't compare... Um, things with each other too much. We now live in an incredibly um, complex investment market. Um, and into that, you have to look at who will take the development risk. And the development risk of the sort of schemes that I'm talking about is largely a time risk that you're locking up money for up to 20 years. It's a site assembly risk that if you're looking at a scheme that is big enough to affect a community, it's quite rare that a single company can acquire the land unless government helps. And both the major schemes I've done, you'll see later on, that the background was government CPOs. Um, and then there's a planning risk that if it's sizable, these days you can be pretty sure it's going to be opposed. So within this sort of world... Um, of investment um, communities, the Blackstones and the Black Rocks and the, the LNGs, who is going to actually sign up for a 20 million, uh, 20 year illiquid scheme? Um, I think the first two risks, I say, are the key ones site assembly and planning, because the other risks they take when they do an ordinary development, but they don't take the site assembly and planning um, when they. <coughs> do um, some, something that's straightforward, a single building. The next problem is 20 years brings in compounding. And while the difference over one or two years between do they want a 6% or a 10% return or a 13% return is relatively insignificant, when you start letting that run on for 10 or 15 years, um, the difference is extraordinary. I mean, if you look at the 20-year difference between um, 6% and 20%, one is three times your money and one is 38 times your money. So if you have institutions saying, my God, community building is complicated and I don't trust the planners to give me the, the, the planning and I don't trust the government to help me assemble the land, I want 38 times my money. You've killed the scheme before you've started. So as a kind of developers, economists, um, planners, government, we've got to find a way of making it less risky so people aren't looking for the 20%. <coughs> Um, that, that was a sort of quick tick box I created about the kind of characteristics that people look for in investment and um, I've, I've sort of graded 
creating communities and long-term schemes. So on the first one, short-term regular income, you know, are we getting paid a coupon on government guilt or are we getting um, paid a dividend from a really solid FTSE 100 company? The answer is it's a bad idea to go into a long-term community development. Capital growth can be better because um, you're holding it a long time. Inflation normally bails you out. And if you are really creating a brand and a place like King's Cross, as you go along, our first rents were at £40, and we've got to £80 um, within eight years. So huge capital growth potential for building the right thing. Liquidity, it feels like it sucks because it's immovable and it's big and you can't uh, sell a half-finished development and nobody wants to take on your roads or your drains when they don't have warranties and they don't know whether how, how they work. On the other hand, you can establish liquidity within a development vehicle so that even if somebody doesn't want to stay for the entire 20-year period, after five years they can sell their shares. So I think if we want more major community developments, we have to create more vehicles with some liquidity in them. Sitting in the front row is Nigel, who's um, Executive Chair of Urban and Civic, which is the only quoted developer that really specialises in doing civic infrastructure and creating new settlements. And it's telling that it's the only one because others think it's too hard. Uh, portability, you can't pick up a settlement, you can pick up a bond, you can pick up a Picasso painting maybe, or a diamond. Scal scalability, it, it hasn't got the scalability of, of a Google brand, but it does have the scalability, especially if you start building a new town, that first you build 1,000 homes, and then 5,000 homes, and maybe 10,000 homes. And, you know, the government has in its mind for the Oxford and Cambridge corridor up to sort of 50,000 homes. You know, these are real towns and real scalability. Um, I gave a tick for pleasure because I enjoy creating places and I think there is, there is a good look, feeling about it. You know, people, whether they buy art or furniture or Ferraris as collectors, buy things for pleasure. Um, volatility, it's not bad. Real estate doesn't fluctuate nearly as fast as Bitcoin. Bitcoin went up, I think, five times in um, five days at one point and then it fell to earth. Um, Gold, I think it went, went, doubled from $900 to $1,800 in uh, three years and then fell back to $1,200 for a longer period. Management ease, it probably feels like it's used very bad for management ease because it takes so much work to put in all the infrastructure and create events and build schools and work with local authorities and education authorities. On the other hand, if we create the right vehicles to deliver these things, the management is all within that vehicle and investors can buy and sell unit shares um, with management ease. Investment fee overhead, it does take a lot of um, fee overhead. On the other hand, um, all of the hedge funds are charging 2 and 20% of the upside and whatever, so that's part of it. And then I come to corporate social responsibility, which is a term when I started in my business career nobody had ever heard of, um, but is actually important now. And I think a lot of um, investment managers would like to be seen to be involved in things that are the right sort of thing. Um, let's return to King's Cross. So this is what King's Cross looked like um, in the 19th century. It's just covered in railway lines, and there's actually 200 acres of railway lines there. There were no shops or homes. Um, so I'd like to sort of compare a bit more um, the deliverability of King's Cross and um, 
Brindley Place in Birmingham with the problems with Mayfields. We didn't have to assemble the land at King's Cross in any meaningful extent because the government, the Labour government post-war, which nationalised lots of industries, effectively CPO'd the whole of King's Cross. Uh, it, it became um, four nationalised in, industries, the railways, the National Freight Corporation, um, gas and oil industries, but most of it went to the railways and national freight. And so when we um, came on the scene, and I'll just show you some sort of more pictures of it in the good old days, um, when we came on the scene, there were only two landowners that really mattered. They had about 98% of the, this land between them, and they decided that they would put it together because it was surplus to either of their requirements and look for a developer. So one of those two holy grails, I've said, of site assembly for a major scheme was in the bag, um, courtesy of CPOs 60 years before. Um, the next scene, the next picture is actually, in effect, what you've seen here, but where there was a kind of hard towpath wall, um, we have now created a place where people enjoy themselves, uh, watch films across the canal, um, and it's, it's another free activity in central London. Um, back to the old carts. Um, the, the reason it, it fell out of use is, is again back to road transport. Um, once lorries were bigger and faster and could go point to point, there was no real purpose in rail freight in England. It's too small a country to justify the rail leg if you've got a lorry leg at either end. Um, so people sometimes say, how did Argent, the small company my brother and I founded, end up with the biggest site um, and the most important development site in London. Um, and I answer more or less truthfully because no one else wanted it. Um, why did no one else want it? Well, I think to a large part, the obvious candidates would have been a land securities or a British land, the biggest quoted office real estate investment trust. But then you have to put your, um, yourself in the shoes of the chief executive of one of those. He's probably only chief executive for another four or five or seven years. Um, he's being shouted at by the analysts to make sure his dividend is covered. He's being shouted at by the analysts not to take on too much debt. Why in the world would he take on a scheme where it's not even going to be on site while he's still chief executive? It's sure going to damage his share options. So most people don't want to take on these types of schemes, even where the land, as was the case here, was reasonably assembled. Um, and, and, and I've switched to um, an image of Brindley uh, Place, Birmingham, which was, was a very similar story, and it was, the, in a sense, our training for doing um, King's Cross. We started Brindley Place in Birmingham in '93. The land had been assembled by Birmingham City Council because they'd bought in 50 acres at a time when Birmingham was on its knees. It had lost its industrial background. It hadn't yet become a service industry town. And they acquired land to build a national indoor arena, a convention center, and a commercial development. And the commercial developer listed Rosehall that bought it, went bust, and we were able to buy 17 acres in a town centre for all of three million pounds, together with 30 million of tax losses, in 93. Um, 
it couldn't have happened without the CPOs. It couldn't have happened in that case without a, a really proactive local government who wanted to make development happen, wanted to regenerate their city. And the trouble is in the areas of demand in the southeast that there are not many very proactive local authorities. Um, more canal side in Birmingham. Um, King's Cross is about four times the size of Brindley Place in Birmingham. It's about uh, ten times the value. And these are just sort of some of the images of street food, people sitting outside. It's interesting actually trying to make places um, very attractive, how you can mix very expensive things with very cheap things. There are some Cornish granite benches, um, keen on benches, in the main square, which cost £70,000 a bench. And then there were these yellow care chairs, which I think cost £8 a chair, uh, and are just dysfunctional. Um, that's an evening we hosted something called London Lumiere um, there. You can see the crowds of people um, coming into the square. We spend nearly £2 million a year sponsoring events. And again, that's a part of what makes the, the place special. It's potentially about 2% of the total income the site will generate, but we think the site will generate more income for, for spending it. So th there is a role for the, the landlord to be the ongoing placemaker, not just the developer. Um, that's um, to give a sense of some of the scale of infrastructure that went in. We have combined heat and power um, running under the entire site, and in the northern part of the site we've got um, a centralised um, cooling system too. Uh, that's more effective in sustainability. It's actually also more effective in costs to centralise it. You don't waste space in individual buildings with the plants and equipment. You can maintain it centrally, but it takes major schemes to do it. So if um, I, don't, I don't know what Nigel does in his schemes. The, the, the tighter the scheme is, the more you can do things like combined heat and power. If you just add another 50 or 100 or 200 houses on to a town, you, you can't do anything like that. But in terms of reasons why, why people are afraid of schemes like this, there's 400 million of infrastructure at King's Cross. 100 million of infrastructure went in before a single occupier moved into a building. Um, but does it pay? You know, should investors go for it? Well, the proof is in the pudding in this one, um, that between the land going in um, and now, which is only a 10-year period, um, the value of each unit has gone up eight times, which is an extraordinary return. It's slightly flattered because the investors also put in a kind of... Um, subordinated quasi-equity debt but if you include that in it's, the value has still gone up four times um, in under ten years um, these high, high returns are due partly to something I'm about to come, come on to which is a discount in price when you buy a big site second the quality of public realm and the constant stream of activities we've curated which make it a, a destination um, third the changing face of demand in central London for places that are more vibrant you know people want to eat and work and live and go to the films and go to the place in the same place and enjoy an experience 
Um, and fourth, which we didn't anticipate, probably the only thing that's not gone according to plan, is we didn't intend to have Google and Facebook who have taken uh, between them over 50% of all the office space. We wanted to have lots of mixed tenants, but you can't say no to Google and Facebook. Um, and by having a major scheme, you can actually accommodate occupiers that a small scheme can't. And not only can you accommodate them because you've got the space, but you've got the timing so that when they come and say, you know, we kind of want something in four or five or six years' time, you say, oh, I can engage with you. Whereas if you've got a single building that's going to be finished in a year, either the tenant wants it now or you can't talk to him. Um, so let's talk a bit um, about residual land value. And I, I don't know how much, how many of you are kind of surveyors will know about valuation, but it's absolutely key to the property industry. Um, and the property, property industry begins to value a site by saying, what's the value of the building that will go on the site? And in this example, I've said the value of the building is 12 million pounds. Then they say, well, what's a fair profit margin for carrying out that? And since the maths is easy, they say 20%, which means if it's going to be worth 12 million, you could spend 10 million on costs and have a two million profit margin. You should remember that as a risk margin because sometimes they go wrong, like my Bristol scheme. Um, you then say, well, what am I going to spend on construction and fees and professional and, and interest? And in this case, I've said six million, which leaves four million that isn't for profit and isn't for construction and design fees. And that four million is for land and the on costs of land. Um, and the on costs of land include stamp duty and interest on the land and whatever. And in this example, you come down to 3.4 million. Now, on a normal scheme, you just do that one building and, and you'd come to your 3.4 million. But on something like King's Cross, there were going to be 60 buildings. Um, and if there's going to be 60 buildings, you can't really be asked to pay for all 60 of them up front when you're not going to be able to reach some of the plots for 10 or 15 years. And so what the three valuers asked to settle this uh, did is they created cash flows going out over 15 years, which was the deemed development period. Um, and they spread the likely take-up of plots over the 15 years, and they spread the likely spend of the 400 million of infrastructure over the 15 years, and then they discounted the later plots back. And the interesting thing is the level of discount. Um, the average discount that the three applied was 13% per annum because they felt that's what somebody ought to be getting for having to handle, hang on to some land that wasn't paying out any income. Now, if you hang on to some land at 13% for you know, one year, it's still worth 88p. If you hold on to land for 15 years um, at 13%, it's only worth 16p. And that meant that we were paying very, very, very little for the later plots, you know, hugely discounted. And that's what gave us the risk margin to do it and largely made it bankable. Um, as an opportunist who's benefited from the risk discount, I am pleased. But as a citizen and urbanist who'd like to see the country benefit from more visionary schemes, I don't think this works. We, so we have to create a slightly different... Um, investment market where we reduce the risk so we reduce the discount rate and, and that, that's a kind of fair trade that if you know you're going to get land assembly, if you know you're going to get planning assuming it's a reasonable kind of application 
then you shouldn't need a 13% kind of return. Um, you know, there's enough people putting money in the bank and getting a negative return now, or, you know, legal in general are shoveling money out in a very, very positive way to local authorities and Oxford University to get a 3 3.5% return, because legal in general think that if they can get 30 or 40 years of 3 3.5%, that's a great return for their pensioners. Um, so we can pull that um, discount rate back if we smarten up the government process of assembling land and planning. But that's, that's the bit the government has got to do. We mere developers can't do it. And developers like me can opportunistically um, enjoy the discount, but we can't make enough good big schemes happen. That's slightly out of order is um, the Brindley Place site in Birmingham I showed you earlier before we started, again raised to the ground by the local authority. I think they bought something like 100 ownerships there um, to put it together. The first Lloyds Bank branch in England was apparently on that site. Um, so let's turn to Mayfields. Um, this is the master plan for Mayfields, which is a scheme I've been working on for seven years. I haven't got planning yet. I don't know if I'll ever get planning. Um, I think it's a wonderful scheme, and I'll tell you why it's a wonderful scheme, and you won't be surprised to know that walkability plays a part in it. So that's the town centre, traditional town centre, proper vibrant high street. We've aimed to produce as many jobs in the town as there are homes in the town, so though you can't force people to live and work in the same place, there's the opportunity to do it. Um, Opposite the, the commercial town centre, which will also include some um, blocks of flats, young people, retirement, whatever, so it's not all just monoculture, two-storey housing, estate housing. Um, opposite that, across a lovely village green of about 40 acres, um, is a through school from 3 to 18. Um, huge school playing fields. Secondary hubs there and there, each of which has a primary school, so up to age 11, um, you can walk within about 500 metres from 90% of the houses to a primary school. 500 metres, 90% of the houses, and in effect, it's, it's probably a kilometre, kilometre and a half max to the senior school from anybody living in here. So people say, locals who don't want it they say, this isn't a sustainable scheme where's the railway station? There's nothing sustainable about a railway station which is putting commuters on trains that are already overcrowded and putting them in cars to get to the railway station there's something a lot more sustainable about saying the school day starts not with the school run strapping your children into, into cars I've, got, I've had five children, I've now sat seven grandchildren so I've done a lot of strapping into cars walking down the road letting them scooter is a hell of a lot better way to start the day um, than, um, than getting into a car. Um, because working with the land, because there's a um, river valley there and a river valley there, um, and there, you immediately get, get into having linear parks. So again, locals will say, this is all the floodplain. Uh, nobody's actually ever been able to show me that any of their houses have ever flooded, occasionally because they don't clear their ditches, um, some of the low bits of the road uh, overflow. But we can clear their ditches for them. We can put a few more culverts in. But we can use these corridors to make the whole thing a linked-up park to bring countryside into town, town into countryside. We have sort of two 
historic models in mind. One is the market town, because the market town is a place where people come into because it has attractions that draw people, it has more mix of use than the, than the smaller villages around it. And the other model we have in mind is actually the spa towns. And both market towns and spa towns produce higher current values today than most housing estates because they have the qualities that people like. The spa towns nearly all had large bits of countryside. You can see it at um, Harrogate or you can see it at Tunbridge Wells brought right into the town centre and they still have these large areas, 50, 100, 200 acres right in the town centre. Um, that we call a maker's yard, so, so we are creating a place for sort of craftsmen um, to make and sell their own products. Um, it's, it's, the whole design is about enabling people to, to live an easy, enjoyable, mixed, diverse life. And it's absolutely about um, trying to get people from zero to 90. It's not about trying to just sell starter homes or executive homes. Um, and we are doing it, 50% of the shares are owned by Clarion, who are the country's biggest housing association, who manage the homes for 360,000 people. And developers need to work more towards being managers and owners. I think the, the English sort of curve up to whatever it nearly got to 75% private home ownership is, is out of line with much of the world. Um, places like Germany are near 55% or something there. Um, and I think actually it will trend down a bit, not, not just because homes have become unaffordable, but because a lot of people are marrying later if they marry at all, having children later if they have children at all, changing jobs more often. And the obsession with getting on the ladder and owning your own building doesn't actually make sense. You know, it, it can be much more flexible and easy just to move in and out of well-managed, decently landlord-operated accommodation. Um, but, as I've said on this, although I think it would be a perfect um, paragon of a scheme, we might not get planning. Land assembly has been a bit of a nightmare, but we've pretty much got there. And if government wants these things to happen, in things like the Oxford and Cambridge cor Corridor, government needs to get out there. They can't just sort of make an announcement and let all of the world go chasing sites in the Oxford and Cambridge Corridor. They've got to say, this is the site. We are CPOing it, 1,000 acres, 4,000 acres, and then we are going to bring in developers and they've got to encourage the developers who will scale up for a 20-year scheme and I think they will come forward if they know that the sites are there and the government will is to do it but at the moment there's just a few oddballs like myself and Nigel who are willing uh, to spend that, that long on it. So I'm calling for a bit of a paradigm shift from government. I'm calling for a sort of virtuous circle and it's a virtuous circle where um, the land and the finance and the vision and the skills and the planning policy and the political will come together. They're not sort of at daggers drawn with each other. Local authorities should want to, to meet and engage with developers. Developers should want to sell their wares. They should make promises that they will bring benefits and then they should keep those promises. And if you can change that paradigm shift, then the virtuous things that I kind of like to boast about in King's Cross or Brindley Place, I think can be carried over into dozens of new communities of 2,000, 10,000, 20,000 homes 
but each of those new communities has to come with the jobs and the schools and the parks and the landscape and the allotments. Um, it doesn't help that we not only have governments who keep changing uh, planning policies, but we have, I think, I may, maybe one out, I think we're on our 18th housing minister in 18 years. Houses endure for very often 100 years or more. Street patterns can endure for 1,000 years. It is insane that we are not producing a more stable planning system, a more cross-party planning system to give us the homes and communities we deserve in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Peter. That's a very, very interesting to me at any rate, and I'm sure to many in the audience. Uh, announcement. Um, there is a, a, a Twitter tag which you're encouraged to use. Uh, there are drinks afterwards in the area outside, free drinks on the, on the department, so you're invited to say that. However, more interestingly, uh, Peter's agreed to answer questions and just engage in discussion. So, uh, questions from the audience about not just the individual schemes that Peter has talked about, but maybe some of the difficulties he's experienced and some of the wider issues uh, that have been raised in that very provocative talk. Can you give your name before you ask your question? Oh, thank you. <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm Lee. I'm the Institute from Institute of Global Affairs, IGA, Institute of Global Affairs. Yeah, RIC. <clears throat> yes, when you are talking, you have, it seems that you have done a brilliant job. And um, as you said, uh, it's a kind of virtual cycle have formed. M my question is like that. Yes, and it's, um, as you said, that it's a, com it's a com commercial interest and a public interest. How do you balance these two kinds of interests? Yes, yes, after the, the circle, the cycle has a form. It is easy for you to deal with. It's part of at the very beginning, the first stage, how to deal with that. Thank you. And, yeah, and you, you mentioned that the local authority and the government, and what do you expect the government to do to make other developers do as the same way? Thank you. Um, In a sense, uh, it, it's about land capture, uh, <coughs> land ca the, the value uplift, and the, and the value uplift is, is either on um, difficult urban sites that have lost their value, like King's Cross or Brindley Place, because whatever buildings were there are no longer functional because people don't want warehouses in the middle of London or whatever, or it's on greenfield land, where at the moment there's agricultural value, um, and the uplift to residential or office value is enormous. So going back to the, the sort of slide I did on residual value, the developer and the local authority, if they have the expertise, and one of the things I think the government needs to do is create some centres of excellence to help local authorities with expertise, can quickly see how much uplift is being triggered by a scheme. And then it's finding a, a kind of equitable and practical way to say, well, actually, instead of all the uplift going to the landowner and there's no money for schools and there's no money for parks or allotments, um, 
let the landowner have an uplift that makes it worth him putting the land in, and if he doesn't, there is the threat of CPO, but extract from that land uplift some value to, to go towards schools and so on. And then the sort of the virtuous cycle is if you're the developer and you want to sell a lot of homes, the thing that I'm told sells homes better than anything else, particularly the kind of executive age homes, is good local schools. So if you're actually building the best local schools, you know you're going to sell homes. So that, that's why they become sort of mutually reinforcing. Thank you. Over there, the back, light shirt. Uh, well, not, sorry, not that far back. There. <laughs> there. Yeah. Hi, you spoke, and when you speak, I guess you probably talk about your ideas because there are elements of realism that you have to include, and government policies will mean there are certain things you can't do, and investors won't allow you to make certain decisions. But could you talk about some ideas that you have that are maybe idealistic or for not to be implemented for a long time into the future until government policy change, but you think could be really important to urban development? Hmm. Um, I mean, one of the ideas which actually has been implemented in the only real garden city built in Britain, which is Letchworth, is that ultimately um, the, the people who live in an area should own its kind of public open space in its centre. Um, and it's something we're looking at at my Mayfield's development as to whether in time we can shift to a local trust made up of local residents, all of the public open space, the, pump, the parks I indicated alongside the um, river lines and the town centre shops, so that a, they control their own space, and B, they have some surplus income. So in Letchworth, you know, beyond the normal um, local authority rates they get given back by whatever the local authority is, which they form a part of, they have more money than other areas to do Meals on Wheels or to do homework clubs or to put on a play or to do some landscaping. Um, and I think as, as part of that land uplift, if the government had the courage to start CPOing the Oxford and Cambridge Corridor, um, you could end up creating communities that absolutely controlled their own area. And, we, you know, we have a sort of funny series of things, uh, which goes all the way up to are we in Europe or aren't we in Europe? You know, do you live in a, in a street or a neighbourhood? Do you live in a parish, do you live in a district council, in England typical district council is about 150,000 people, do you live in a county, well counties have almost ceased to exist other than a few, for a few things like education um, or do you live in a country, we had under the last Labour government, was it nine regional development authorities we got, we've got rid of the regional development authorities, we've now invented uh, I think it's 23 uh, local enterprise partnerships you know, what, where do you live and in Mayfields, um, we actually are in three different parishes. Although we're only 800 acres of land, we're in three different parishes that represent, I think the smallest is about 1,000 people and the biggest is 4,000 people. And to my mind, none of those is really a functional size. And over time, we need to... You know, they're, they're all really historic. They're things that may be 500 years old or back to the Norman Conquest or whatever. We, we, we need to start redefining what is a, an area in which people live. And I go back to an extent to, you know, can they walk there within max half an hour? 
Good, down the front here. Uh, I'm Nigel Hugill. I run Urban Civic, which Peter kindly referred to before. And just to start, it is extraordinary that King's Cross had almost no competition when Argent um, put themselves forward. Equally, in my previous business at Chelsfield, we had no competition at Stratford when we put ourselves forward for that. So the two largest developments in London has transpired over the last 20 years. There was literally no competition, really, for either of us. We, we had one and, and Peter had the other. If I look at um, King's Cross, however, one of the real challenges that was faced that you glossed over was there was very substantial opposition in first instance yeah. to his development. And actually at Stratford we were lucky that there wasn't that opposition, nor, nor was there a Brindley Place, really. So in, in the mention that you make of value capture, it's implicit within those discounted calculations that you do that much of that value capture has to be back-end loaded. It can't be at the front because, again, it gets to the point that the values are not high enough. So there's, therefore that relies on a trust. It relies on a contract. And what I'm wondering is how we better, given the fact that the two of us are literally probably the biggest exponents of this, how, how we better establish that trust in that value capture in order that we are able to, to get, for example, the consent at Mayfield, where, again, there is substantial opposition. So it's that basis of trust. How do we better build that? Um, are you talking about the trust with the local authority? Well, the, tr local. Well, the trust essentially with the community to, in order to get the... It's all, all very well saying that government should do more, but government is, is reflecting an innate opposition in some but not all instances. Um, I think to some extent we need to do training, uh, training for kind of... Uh, interconnections between developers, architects, master planners and local authorities more. Um, I was involved in a, in a sort of three-day thing called the Housing Sprint at the Oxford Business School a few weeks ago and we brought together lots of people from different aspects of the industry kind of professionals, thinkers, dealers, developers, whatever and it, in the course of three days more sort of mutual trust and, and esteem was Developed At the moment, there's a kind of bit of a barrier. There's a barrier where very often local authority councillors feel that it would be embarrassing to talk to developers, even with planning officers in the room. Um, I'm not saying that they should be meeting de developers on uh, the Costa del Sol or um, ski, ski resorts and, and being looked after, but I'm suggesting that for councillors to meet and talk to developers is important with the officers in the room. Um, I think it also needs more of the expertise I referred to. There's, um, I don't know how many of you know what SIL is and how many of you know what Section 106 is, but there are, there are two fundamental ways that most developments um, end up paying something to the community or the local authority. And Section 106 is a specific agreement that the developer enters into promising to, to build a school or a roundabout or traffic lights. Um, and that's meant to be relevant to the size and scale and impact of the development. And SIL is just a monetary thing where, where the local authority says, we'll have £20,000 per house. And if you build two houses, we'll have £40,000. If you build 100 houses, we'll have £2 million or whatever. Um, 
they both have their place on a small scheme it probably makes more sense just to, to hand over seal um, because you can't sort of make a small scheme, pay for a school that's not big enough um, and, and there isn't the time to negotiate it. On a big scheme, it makes much more sense to have a bespoke section 106 where the specific benefits um, are, are brought out that relate to that scheme and are much more likely to draw the local authority into saying, wow, we're getting something back, whereas a, just a cheque will disappear into the local authority as a whole. And if you're the particular local residents, you know, 150,000 people in the district, the district is 15 miles by 15 miles or something, you, the local residents who feel you've been impacted, don't get anything back from SIL but you do from a section 106. But that requires more expertise and more um, talking, more, more, more trust, more conversation between the local authority, the developer, and the community. Um, I didn't do it. My colleague, Roger Madeline, uh, I think did 350 public meetings to get King's Cross through. Um, and as Nigel says, I glossed over planning on King's Cross, although we got it through just in Camden, which was the main local authority. Three acres were in Islington, and even though we ultimately got off as a recommendation, the Islington Council turned us down. They didn't turn us down at the first two committee meetings because the officers begged them not to turn us down. At the third committee meeting, they just said, we're turning it down. So we had to go to appeal. So, you know, there's got to be a sort of a more grown-up national dialogue. So at the back there, there's one right at... Towards the back. The further back, further back. Is <laughs> that was you I had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to spread them around. Hi, uh, I'm Angelina. I uh, was wondering, uh, actually, um, also uh, considering the, the challenges. Um, um, but other kind of challenges, like areas like when I, I'm just thinking about like areas like Eastern Germany, like we have like a lot of land there and um, you have issues like with society, you have discrimination, you have all these other issues, but plenty of land. So what or how would you approach such kind of challenges? Can, can I just check the question? You were saying in areas like East Germany where there's a lot of land. Yes, yeah. yes there is a, a, a lot, lot of, of you uh, have the challenges of, of people and land. different mentalities. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think one of the things that government, dare I say it again, has to do is recognise that different policies um, apply to different areas, um, to an extent driven by demand and land value. In in the southeast, it's a bit of a crying shame if a new settlement can't pay its own costs. Um, in the northwest, that might not be true. In eastern Germany, it might not be true. So you know, it, it becomes a sort of government's responsibility and duty to say, we don't want everybody draining into Berlin or London. Um, we, we need to help areas that have become run down and derelict. Um, so, so I think there is still a proactive hand on the checkbook role for government. How far they take that role and how they kind of hand the baton back and forth between the private sector and, and government itself, 
I, I probably am enough of a sort of Thatcher child that I think that maybe the private sector will bring more flair or creativity or whatever to, to um, actually carrying it off. But the government has got to identify the project more, help tee up the land, tee up the planning, and where it's an area of very low values, have got, has got to help subsidise it. And what the private sector needs to do, but it will only do if the government makes more opportunities available, is gear itself up to deliver these comprehensive opportunities. And I think, to some extent, the private sector needs to be invited. The government in England has something called framework agreements, and that they will have a framework agreement to appoint an engineer or an architect or an accountant, which means that when they want to tender out a job to one of those professionals, they've already got a list of people and they don't have to advertise you know, to the whole world. They just go to the framework agreement. So we need a, a framework agreement of inverted commas master developers that will include the long-term money of a Grosvenor estate or legal in general, will include master planners, will include possibly you know, civil, civil engineers or civil engineering contractors who, who are a group who have come together and said, we will work together, we can work together for 20 years to take on the, the soup to nuts of a whole new community. As Julian Cooper, David Cooper, and go Peter. Just touching on this, can I get your view on the green belt and why it is, given everything you said, that governments of all stripes have seemingly done nothing about building in the green belt? And I'm thinking specifically, really, within the transport nodes because. All the research seems to show that this housing crisis could be solved if governments of all persuasions were prepared to put in the infrastructure and amend it and, dare I say, going back to your original suggestion, in effect do some form of land swap just primarily near these transport nodes. And I I just pose the question, it does seem, you know, on the outside looking in, perverse that nothing radical has happened to the Greenbelt. And if I can ask one more question, if I may. Just if I can get your view on smart cities and um, technology and how this is helping you and developers going forward plan and do urban planning. Because I'd be quite interested to know, because presumably this is, you must be at the cutting edge of um, this technology. And I just want to know how this is going to, play out going forward if I may um, on Greenbelt I'll tell you the story of one of my um, great failures um, we bought 180 acres of Greenbelt in Weybridge in I think 1985 four years after we started um, right next to the River Thames um, right next to built up Weybridge it was just this sliver of Greenbelt between the town and the idea I floated earlier, I floated then, I floated 20 acres of housing and 160 acres of landscape endowed public park, which used to be a hunting ground of Henry VIII, used to be a house of the grand old Duke of York, had vestiges of a lake that had almost dried up the size of the serpentine, and we were offering to, to restore the serpentine and create pond dipping and um, you know, learning centres for, for, for children and sports fields and whatever. And it was the flattest, most overgrazed piece of horticulture. It had no benefit other than to the people who kept their horses there. Um, we got to a point after three years where we thought we were ready for a public 
meeting having we thought got enough support from enough councillors to, to, to really go public on it um, and at the end of the presentation by myself and our architects and our landscape architects um, the first person to speak was the leader of the council and he got up and he said what's not to like and I thought wow we're there after he sat down um, Councillor Gordon Chubb I remember his name from 1988 Councillor Gordon Chubb said it's alright for you Bill the leader of the council you're not standing for re-election I am this is the front line of the green belt we cannot let an inch go um, and I went on pushing the scheme uphill water uphill for about another 20 years before um, I sold the land to the lady who ran the horticulture uh, for the most part and a, a bit to a local school for extra parking and a playing field for the other part so um, it's the front line, it's the trenches we can't give an inch of it, it, it it's the most nonsensical argument but it's what every councillor in the South East will say um, on your second question uh, despite having a phone I'm, I, I'm pretty untechnological um, uh, and I sort of take it for granted that if and when we get permission for Mayfields we will put the best technology into it but the sorts of things that are obviously changing how people live and work um, mean that whereas everybody was required in their office five days a week that is changing you know the, the office hasn't died it is a meeting place and people still go to, to to the offices a lot but most offices are happy for people to work one or two days a week from home um, i think that the spread and leaving we work aside which is a walking disaster the spread of well-managed service offices will start reaching out into the smaller towns as hubs where people who either haven't got the space or haven't got the concentration to work at home can walk 500 meters a thousand meters and work in the town they live one or two days a week um so I, I, I think buses, which, as, as I said, you know, began to be only poor people use buses, other than maybe in central London. Buses now that you can see on a bus station what time they're going to arrive. Buses that are beginning to evolve as not necessarily things that have to carry 50 people at a time, but might carry a dozen people at a time and can work out smart routes to pick up a few people on, on a kind of shared journey rather than a predestined journey will I think also help um, make new settlements greener in the sense of needing less cars Hi, okay. um, given that you, you said that planning is one of the biggest risks I would like to hear your view about uh, other countries having another model, like in Germany, for instance, local authorities do a planning, like a B plan, a building plan, and it basically prescribes and tells you exactly what you can build. They might even go that far that they kind of build the infrastructure, so the upfront costs, the roads, the sewage systems, the, the electricity and, and so forth for you, and then get it out for developers. But obviously, you know, you, you've been handed a, a kind of blueprint for a scheme rather than being able to create your own. How do you see that as kind of mitigating the risk? Um, I'm afraid I'm not an expert in other countries other than when I'm on holiday there. Uh, so I probably know more about Tuscan hill towns than I know about kind of um, German um, experiments in new town planning. I, I think 
the, I mean, obviously, there's places like China where they where they have built in 25 years towns that take 10 million people, uh, and in England, the only thing we have built of scale is Milton Keynes, which takes 230,000 people after um, 50 years. So, I, I mean, I think all of the sort of settlements on the books in England are two to 10,000 homes. I don't think anything is actually really bigger than 10,000 homes at the moment. Um, so. I, I uh, accept my lack of knowledge uh, uh, about what, what happens abroad. My instinct is the the right um, method is for central government and local government to identify the strategic sites, to assemble the strategic sites, to say what the kind of overall quantum is, but still to get what I'm calling the, the new breed of massive developers to come forward and say how to dispose of it across the site. Um, and when I look at the sort of Chinese rows of Corbusier blocks or whatever, it doesn't fill me with joy. Um, and, and I think the private sector in Britain, which has incredibly talented architects, um, if let loose, could create some wonderful places. Up back there. Uh, um, I am a sustainable development master student at NYU, at NYU at Bedford Square, and um, I actually have two questions, if that's okay. Uh, my first question is that I was actually at a sustainable finance conference um, that, at King's University uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's really, I think it's a really interesting concept because they're also really starting to talk about um, changing the industry as well, and I really do think in terms of developers' perspective, that Arjun put put together an incredible project with King's Cross, especially what it was before. But um, my question is is really about, in terms of, from a developer perspective, in terms of finance, are you guys kind of looking at impact investing a little bit in ESG funds as maybe potential sources of capital in the future? And if maybe those two industries can work better together, specifically because that kind of industry, the way that it's, I think it, that it's headed, is really focusing on environmental impact and is really focusing on social impact as well, which is really the principle of what King's Cross and Arjun, I feel like, is trying to do. Um, King, King's Cross was, in a sense, very traditionally funded. Um, nearly all of the money came from mainstream property lending banks. Uh, I'll give you a quick, quick story on risk on that. Um, we agreed, in principle, a 700 million loan in 2007 from five banks, which was about a year before we were going on site. Uh, one of the banks rang us up about late 2007 and said, I think you should make it 550 million and put in 150 million of equity beyond the land. We, we were trying to treat the land as the only equity. Uh, and then Lehman's went bust uh, the same week as we got vacant possession and the five banks with their 550 million disappeared. Um, we were grateful for the bank, um, which had call, called up and said, put in another 150 million of shareholder loan because that was in place and that was what we had to carry out the initial um, infrastructure work with because in 2008, when we started, there was no bank debt. Um, I, I think that if it is a really commercial scheme, you probably can still do it with bank debt, and bank debt is 
cheap, but in this cycle, which is the reason there haven't been any bank, uh, bankruptcies and why the cycle hasn't been particularly volatile, bank debt has rarely been more than 50% of cost. Um, in previous cycles, we once had a loan for a building in Covent Garden where we borrowed 93% of cost because the value was meant to be much higher than cost and whatever and whatever. Um, I think it's really sensible that banks are actually only lending 50% of cost because it means the developers have to put their money where their mouth is. It means there's a a margin and things uh, don't fall out of bed. I'm not sure about the particular sources you were suggesting and and where they come from, but um, whether it's sort of government loans from Homes England or whether it's people like Legal and General... We do need to create a a class of investor lender who is willing to look at much longer periods. Our bank loans have all been sort of three, five or seven years. We need need to find people who are prepared to do 15 or 20 years. On Brent Cross, which is Argent's next big scheme, um, Homes England has made or has agreed a, a, a large loan which is a kind of almost lifetime of scheme loan with with a bit being repaid from each phase whereas most bankers want to be repaid from the first phase Uh, (laughs) sorry um the other part to my question uh it's really about kind of what you what you determine a success in terms of, of a site um I, re- I actually just had the pleasure of touring uh, Central St. Martin's yesterday with Stanton and Williams, with the lead architect there. So it was really an incredible site. But I think there's a really great contrast, actually, in terms of the coal drops yard, because you know it's a heavily commercial space. But um, it's also interesting because you have Google coming in and Samsung, two big tech companies. And if you really think about it, like commercial space could become obsolete, especially in terms of the retail. And I think Fred Perry's sales kind of reflect that a little bit as well. So I'm kind of wondering about maybe the adaptability as well to a site like Cold Drops so it doesn't become obsolete in the next structural change in the economy, as, which is what happened to the granary complex, actually, originally. Um, I mean, I guess I, I look at success in, in, in two senses. One, one is you manage to build out the business plan without going bust. Uh, and the other is you, you, you look around and you see kind of happy, happy, busy people. Um, and it is extraordinary. If I watch the faces of people coming up the boulevard, which is going to be fully pedestrianized when the Google building's finished, and is at points, I think, about 30 meters wide, so a huge pedestrianized street, the people coming up there look happier than people I see on Oxford Street or Regent Street because there's something positive going on there. Maybe part of what's positive is going on is they're not going to be knocked down by a car or a bus. Um, but And they're going to cross a canal and they're going to come into a big square and see fountains and from May to October they're going to see kids in the fountains. Um, so you, you refer to cold drops which at the moment, um, we've turned two Victorian kind of um, railway viaducts into, into a retail centre designed by Thomas Heatherwick. And we've done it at a time when, when retail is tough. Um, and we are having to make it work for the retailers because there aren't enough people coming at the moment. And as a landlord of the whole, we, we can look at the terms of trade. We can put in um, more 
placemaking things. I don't know whether you've seen the kind of millions of flowers we've used as, as a placemaking thing that um, Dan Pearson designed. Um, those, those are heritage buildings that have to stay. They create a fantastic place to be in. And then it's down to our experimentation and skill to make sure that they have a long-term life where people want to enjoy being. Yes, mine is uh, a question of three factors mentioned earlier in terms of risk, space, and social responsibility. In terms of the location of King's Cross being incredibly central, it has seven stations, British Rail, and now Eurotunnel. My issue is why, in your experience, it remained so derelict over four or five decades, and somehow nobody was interested in that land and the space. It's inner city, central, accessible. Um, why was it developers were so afraid and feared to take the risk of developing such an incredible site so close to the centre of London? Was it because of local authorities, bureaucracy, or was it merely financial, or other factors? Um, we, we were definitely the third, and for all I know, there may have been more um, attempts to make King, King's Cross happen. There was one, I think, in the 60s. Um, then in the later 80s, uh, Rose Hall and Stanhope had it struck down to them. I think spent something like 20 million on their planning application then, and then went bust. Um, apart from the fact that I'm glad that it didn't happen then because we got to do it. If it had happened then, what they were largely going for was um, office towers. They had a more central open space than we have, um, but they have buildings that were sort of 20, 30, 40 storeys tall. Um, and it, it, it failed basically because of the economic cycle. They, they were just about to get permission um, as the kind of 89 boom turned into the 1991 bust. Um, but I think if the economic cycle hadn't turned down, they'd probably have delivered it. Um, I don't know whether the 60s was too early, whether the land was really available. I mean, certainly throughout the the sort of late 90s and early 2000s, the land was being intensively used to build the Channel Tunnel Rail Link for logistics, but they probably could have built it from somewhere else if it hadn't been available. Um, I, I guess because of the long time it takes to get through planning and the large amount of money to get through planning, and what I said about the Chief Executive of Land Sex or British Land not wanting to do something that's beyond his time frame um, and probably the same goes for the chairman of the planning committee and the chief planning officer and all the rest of them something which is going to take it took us eight years to get on site from when we shook hands with the two key landowners is it's just difficult to make happen something will go wrong in that eight year period even if somebody starts unless government can give it a bit more help there just just on the aisle there so what yeah, on the aisle there, quite sure. Hi there, um, my name is Michael Verona. Um, I'm from Aspire Development Management. I was a little bit surprised um, by one of your slides, um, the one where it was the matrix of you know what what makes large scale regeneration appealing to an investor, and you had a cross next to short term income. 
Now we've seen, particularly in London, um, kind of a proliferation of meanwhile uses. The likes of Box Park and um, Printworks at Canada Water have been a success. Do you see, you know, meanwhile uses as now something that potentially could be seen as income generating, as well as providing a more kind of important meanwhile use that generates a sense of place? Um, I, I think that we might be slightly at cross purposes by what I meant short-term income. I meant short, by short-term income, I meant income that comes in every week, every, every month, every quarter. And if you know, the initial land price on King's Cross was 140 million, um, the initial infrastructure bill was 100 million, the total infrastructure bill was 400 million. If, if you're an institution who's thinking about putting hundreds of millions out on the whole, you, you'd like... Um, you know, five or ten or fifteen million to be coming in a year. That's what I meant by short-term income. And on King's Cross, although we have taken out the shareholder, most of the shareholder debt now, we've not actually paid ourselves a dividend. And we are ten years into building, and we had eight years of planning before that. So although we are looking at something like 160 million of payable rental income in about three years' time. That will be over 20 years after we set out. So that's what I meant by there's no short-term in- income. Uh, obviously, there's some small bits of income because you put in a, a theatre or a market, but they, they don't pay you much relative to the hundreds of millions you have out. Uh, just time for maybe two more questions and run them together. One right at the back there and one there. So whoever gets to the microphone first, up, up there. Uh, hi. Uh, my question is, when you're building such uh, rehabilitation projects in the middle of the city, how do you ensure that there are no externalities like gentrification, and can you really control for such externalities? Gentrification. How can you ensure? You, you want gentrification or you don't want gentrification? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, how do you ensure that... Uh, that there is not um, peop- like there is affordable housing also at the same time and people are, have access to uh, housing in central London I think it's about whether high social housing and affordable housing yeah, yeah. Um, I mean going back to what I said about section 106 agreements which are contractual deals that don't only bind the applicant developer they bind the land and anybody who, who buys and takes forward the scheme um, so on our King's Cross section 106, which ended up about that fat as a document, um, probably the longest section in the section 106 was about affordable housing. I think we agreed that 45% of the homes would be affordable, um, and we agreed the, the qualifications for affordable, and we involved the local authority in the kind of choice of a housing association to implement it, Probably in the, in the crudest of terms, um, what it really meant is that all the land and infrastructure that went into an affordable home was a gift of, of the developer or the scheme. Um, and so a housing association, in effect, only had to fund the construction costs and probably not even, in truth, the full construction costs. So as as part of bringing forward a scheme with lots of commercial upside and buildings where Google might pay £80 a foot, housing associations who couldn't otherwise buy land in London were able to um, end up with space where 
um, the, the ordinary affordable rent would give them a yield on the, on the building cost. Okay. One more quick question, as promised. Yeah, um, I'm an architecture student from Central St. Martins and I'm looking at the right to the city and how this applies to the area of King's Cross. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. So the right to... So the ideology, the right to the city, so a common right of urban society to not be excluded from qualities of space and to have ownership and reclamation of the space. Right, you mean... Did, did... To what extent do the public have full access or control? Yeah, so what measures were taken to ensure the residents were of the surrounding area who were there previously, so business yeah. owners, residents, how were they involved in the building of collective life around King's Cross as it is now? I mean, I, th I think and, um, the Guardian has sometimes sort of been unkind and said that, that our, you know, our public realm is over manicured and isn't open to the public the, that is totally not true um, the, it is totally open to the public there's no sort of gates or turnstiles or charging, there's no turning away people because they're not dressed according to any code or whatever so, so although we own all of the public open space there are some rights for Camden to step in if we don't maintain it as public open space or we don't maintain it to a standard but I think Camden recognised that we're probably going to maintain it to a higher standard than they are the public is totally welcome um, and indeed as I said before we spend money curating events um, that the public access for free um, so it, although it is a, a private estate it is for the public's enjoyment um, and if you go there and see mothers and toddlers sitting on benches and running in and out of the fountains, you will see that it's not being maintained as a sort of area for suits, it's being maintained as an area for people. Okay. Can, I, can I quickly We ask? have to stop there, I'm sorry, we've already overrun, and we have to thank Peter...